I'd encourage you now, grab your Bibles and uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to invite Matt Whitney up, and he's going to read our text for us as we dive into this rich passage together. You guys, all please stand to give attention to God's Word. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come together to receive from you we gather to submit our lives under your holy word. Thank you for bringing us together, for uniting us to yourself through the person of Jesus. We ask that you would guide us into truth this morning, allow these words to come alive, be opened before our eyes, that we would see Jesus in new and fresh ways, that we would heed the call of this text to pay much closer attention to what we had heard, have heard, lest we drift away. So hold us fast, hold us to you, and I pray that you would unite us together, uh, rooted in the gospel of Jesus that saves us. I pray for the kids, even this morning, who are meeting in other classrooms around this building, that you would work in their lives, be with the teachers as they seek to 
unpack and, and reveal Jesus to them. Pray that you would awaken young hearts to the truth of the gospel and bring them to yourself. So I just pray that, that every uh, aspect of this gathering of your people this morning would be a time in which we can grow to know and love you more. So we thank you. We declare you as our king. And we are reminded again of the great salvation that is brought to us in Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Let me ask you, have you ever taken the time to uh, read some of the warning labels that uh, actually appear on some of the products that you buy? Oftentimes, you know, you, you, almost every product has some kind of warning label on it, whether it's household cleaners or whatever, and you read those, sometimes they're, they're very, you know, they make a lot of sense. It's helpful. You know, if your kid drinks this uh, uh, window cleaner, maybe it'd be good to call the poison control department or something like that. So um, sometimes those things are good, but actually sometimes some pretty interesting things get put onto warning labels, some things that you look at and you're kind of like, well, was that really necessary? I have a few uh, examples of this for us uh, this morning. Um, our first one here is a hairdryer. So for those of you who might be tempted to go, to, you know, struggling to go, whether you should go to bed with your hair wet if you were ever thinking about maybe trying to do both of these things at the same time and sleeping with your hairdryer on, don't do that. It's not wise, according to this warning label. Uh, the next one we have here is uh, a hanger, which apparently they thought it was necessary to tell you not to swallow it, which I would be really impressed to see the person that could actually do that. Uh, the next one we have is uh, this. So for all you young parents out there who are trying to, trying to figure out how to use your stroller, Make sure you remove the child before you fold it up. Might be a little difficult. Be a quick way to get them in the car, though, anyway. Um, I have another one here, uh, which is, uh, oh, yeah, a letter opener. Um, you know, if you have a little trouble getting into your mail, uh, just read the caution. Blades are extremely sharp. Safety goggles are recommended. <laughs> in case you're really aggressive in opening your mail, you might want to put the safety goggles on. Um, and then I have one more here. It's a microwave here. It says, warning, do not use for drying pets. Although I did hear it's okay if it's your cat. Um, make, just, make, just make sure it's on high. So, anyway. These things are funny. They're silly. It's like very unnecessary, you know. But in a world in which companies, I guess, are trying to limit their liability and, and cover all their bases, they, we, we see some interesting things that appear on these labels. Uh, but in all seriousness, the passage that we encounter today holds out to us a warning that we must heed. It's a warning that attached to it is really life or death. And here in chapter 2, we encounter the first of what are five warning passages that we will encounter throughout the book of Hebrews. And these warning passages, as they've been called, have been much debated throughout the church trying to understand the nature of the warnings and what it, what it means to drift away or, or fall away. And so we'll be encountering these things over the coming months as we wrestle through this book. But as we study texts like this, we have to remember the, the thrust of this book written to a, a people, maybe young in their faith, who are facing difficulties and challenges around them. And maybe they're beginning to be tempted to leave their newfound faith. To maybe drift away from Jesus and maybe return to some, some old ways, even submit again back under Jewish law 
and kind of the whole structure of, of, of Judaism and the Mosaic Code. And so the central thrust of this book comes in over and over again calling these people and us to persevere in your faith. To don't walk away. Don't give up. And the reason is because Jesus will not let you down. He is better than anything else that you can turn to, that you can look to for salvation or satisfaction or security. And so, we're going to dive into this passage, this pretty dense passage, and we'll look at this through three movements. First, we'll see a gentle warning, we'll see a needed reminder, and then we'll see a profound encouragement. So he starts in verse 1 with giving us and setting forth this gentle warning. Again, let's, let's recognize our context as we enter into chapter 2. In chapter 1, he sets forth this, this extended argument that God has spoken with finality to us in the person of Jesus. And he argues that because of the nature and the, the power and the work of Jesus, that, that he is greater than the angels. And he goes on to link all these Old Testament passages together that, that prove and support this truth. And he builds this case for the superiority of Jesus to the angelic hosts, these beings who, who dwell with God in the spiritual realm, who serve him and ultimately serve us. And Aaron unpacked kind of this idea of the angels last week. And so then here at the beginning of chapter 2, we encounter this word, therefore. Meaning, he's saying this, he's saying, in light of what I have just said in chapter 1, all, this, all this, this, this argument surrounding angels, he said, in light of this, I'm now going to draw a conclusion for you. And the conclusion is this, he says, therefore, we must pay careful attention to what you have heard so that you don't drift away. Now, it may be hard for us to kind of relate to the connection here, the logic of, of the writer, because, as Aaron even highlighted last week, many of us are not struggling with kind of the status of angels. Oftentimes, we don't even think about angels very often. So maybe for us, initially, the, the argument of this passage doesn't really land with us. It's like, oh, I, I wasn't really worried about angels, but thanks for telling me. Um, and so we're kind of maybe struggle to know, and we, we may ask, why does he go to such great lengths to kind of prove the status of Jesus over the angels? But as we follow his argument here into chapter 2, I think we'll see how he draws out Jesus' identity and Jesus' work, and we'll see how it speaks volumes certainly to this generation, to the, to the original audience, but also to us. And so, here in verse 1, he offers us this gentle warning in some of the later passages, the language is going to, be, going to be a little more severe, a little more bold in how he confronts the reader. But here he starts off fairly gentle, saying, hey, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. So it has these two parts to it, this warning. Pay attention and don't drift. And those are related together. So he tells his audience to pay attention to what they've heard. This word translated to pay attention carries this idea of holding on to something firmly or to, to turn your mind attentively to something. The idea of, of to obsess over it. And it says that which they're to pay close attention to is that which they had heard. So the natural question is, well, what did they hear? And in verses 2 and 3, it gives clarity for us in that. The message they heard is also described as this great salvation. The salvation was the message that was declared by Jesus. It was also carried on by His disciples or His apostles. It was passed on to the church. 
This message that they heard was nothing more than the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth that Jesus has come as the long-awaited fulfillment of all of Israel's story. And by His life, His death, and His resurrection, He brings deliverance from sin and ultimate hope of restoration. The salvation story was then shared with these new believers. They embraced it. They believed it. They committed their lives to it. And the writer here is pleading with them not to let go of it. To hold on to this truth. This which captivated them. Which drew them in. He says, pay attention to it. Grow into it. Don't move on past it. But continue to obsess over it in your life. Give it attention. Think about it. Recognize it. Continue to believe it. Question then for us is ultimately what receives our closest attention? What do we uh, hold on to closely? How carefully do we actually give attention to and hold on to our faith? To growing and understanding the depth and riches of the Gospel. What do you obsess over in your life? My wife would, would tell you that I have a fairly obsessive personality. When, when I get into something or have a hobby, I, I, I dive fully into it. I get very engaged with it. And one hobby that I've been obsessed with for a long time is the game of golf, if you know me. And uh, I spent a lot of years trying to understand the, the golf swing and, and, and how, to, how to hit the ball straight, how to be consistent with it, to the point where I still will watch instructional YouTube videos, trying to figure things out. My wife constantly rolls her eyes at me because she'll see me and looking in a mirror trying to you know, check the plane of my golf swing, trying to, trying to you know, groove and understand the movements that, that it takes. In my garage, I have a sheet set up and a little piece of carpet that I can actually hit balls into in, in my garage. I, I, I'm obsessed with trying to understand this game, to grow and to get better at it. What is that for you that you obsess over? Is it your Instagram feed and your following? Is it your hobby, your career path, and the, the business that you're trying to, trying to build and grow? It takes all your attention. Is it your fantasy football team? Is it... Uh, this or that, whatever. There's so many things that can captivate us. And my point is not that, that we shouldn't give attention to those things or we shouldn't have those obsessions or passions. But the question is, do we give anywhere near the same type of attention or thought, obsession to what God has done in our lives through the Gospel? Do we long to be in His Word, to know Him more, to understand how He could save us what are the rhythms that are, that are just foundations in your life that you commit to so that you can pay attention to this truth? Whether that's the regular gathering with God's people that you can't miss out on. Whether it's committing and co connecting with a life group to, to, to study God's Word. To have others who can reach into your life and say, hey, how you doing holding on? Whether it's getting into a journey group and just studying the Scriptures together with another person. What kind of attention is there in your life to these things, to this message that has changed you, that you would declare your allegiance to? Or is it something that you are beginning to neglect? It's kind of optional. It's a second thought in your life. Because the writer of Hebrews gives us a warning that if we let it become that, then what may happen is, what he describes here, this drifting away. You may drift away. 
The word here has the idea of to gradually give up on something. To, to let go of something that you were holding on to that, that, you, that, that, that you then leave from. Picture a boat in a lake or the ocean that is cut loose from its anchor. What's it going to do? It's not going to stay in that spot, but as the waves and the water moves around it, it's going to drift wherever. And this is the idea that he's calling them to, saying if you don't pay attention to these things, if you don't remember and, 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 and obsess over the, the glories of the Gospel, then you may be called and drawn to drift away into other things. See, it's rare for one who identifies as a Christian just uh, simply to wake up one day and just kind of give up on their faith. But it's a slow process. It's, a, it's a, a, something that happens little by little over time. So what are the things that draw our attention or cause us to drift? Sometimes it are, is very good things. It's not necessarily just the pursuit of our own flesh, but it's good things that can oftentimes draw our attention and cause us just to drift in our faith. It can be our ambitions that ultimately rule us, that become the ultimate thing that we pursue, whether that's our family, our career, our hobbies, our desire to travel, our kids' sports, whatever it may be. There's, there's so many good things that can just distract us and take us off of looking at Jesus. I love this quote that I read somewhere. It says this, it says, the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. It's the subtle things, it's the little things that we start, start pouring ourselves into that take our time, take our attention, that drive out all margin for actually giving attention to what God has done in our lives, of giving attention to God's people that may lead towards this drift that He's talking about. For others in here, maybe it's just been a, a slow process for you. Maybe you came to faith in a time of crisis, you found help and stability, and Jesus seemed to be a good answer for you. But now it just isn't really working anymore. Maybe it's time to move on and find something else. Maybe you feel just a, a sense of disillusionment from your faith. Maybe it's even rooted in the failures of other Christians who you knew and respected and looked up to, saw them fall and walk away, struggling to know whether you can actually hold on. Maybe you have feelings of, well, this is just something I grew up with, and now that I kind of am older and think about things differently, you know, maybe this, maybe this wasn't for me. Maybe life has gotten really difficult, and you're, you're beginning to just question whether God is actually there for you in this season. Maybe following this Jesus isn't actually the path to joy that, that you were told that it was. It sure doesn't feel like joy right now. Wherever those tensions lie in your heart that are pulling you in different directions, no matter the doubts that you're struggling with and the, the difficulties that you see, this text calls out to us, calls out to you and to me, and it says to us, don't give up. Take a fresh and a deeper look at Jesus again. Look at Him in new ways and remember the truths that first captivated and took your heart in. Don't turn to lesser things. Don't let your heart drift towards other things that will fail you, but hold on to Jesus 
And he's going to go on to tell us in this passage why and lift up this image of Jesus to us. So here is this gentle warning. And after this, he then gives his audience two needed reminders. A needed reminder in verses 2 through 8. There's so much here, but we got to just kind of work through it quickly. First, he tells them that Jesus brings a better message. He reminds them of this truth that Jesus brings a better message. He continues this comparison of Jesus to the angels. And he argues that the message that Jesus brings is better than the message of angels. And to support this claim, he uses this argument from the lesser to the greater. He says this, he says, Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, you know what he's talking about there? What's he talking about? What is this message that was declared by angels? It's well recognized that this is a reference to the giving of the law, the Torah, which maybe has you scratching your head because if you remember when we went through the book of Exodus last year and we encountered this passage, you don't remember maybe the angels being present on Sinai when the law was given, right? If you look there, it's not explicitly highlighted or, or spoken of. So what's, what's this all about? Because then in, in other passages, such as Acts 7, we read this when Stephen is calling out to the uh, Jewish authorities around him. He says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Later on in Galatians 3, it says this, it says, the law was added because of transgressions and it was put in place through angels. So the, the New Testament writers assume this truth that that's in some sense the, the, the law was given and mediated by the angels. I think uh, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 33 that kind of hints at this and, and kind of speaks about this. And so it appears that the angelic host was there at the giving of the law. They served as witnesses to the covenant enactment. The angels were viewed as those entrusted by God with in some sense delivering the law to God's people. And as such, for this audience, the message of the angels was the very Word of God. It was the ultimate Word that had been delivered to God's people up to that time. It was rock solid. It was eternal. It was binding. The law was to be revered. It was to be upheld. It was to be obeyed. It was a reliable guide for God's people on how they were to live in the world and ultimately how they were to be a light to the nations. The law was God's plan and His path for God's people. And so the writer is saying, if the law that was given by angels was something that God's people were called to listen to, to depend on, and to live under as the means by which they would show their covenant loyalty to Yahweh, and if God brought punishment and exile upon them when they disobeyed the law, when they ran after foreign gods, he's saying if that was true of that message, then how much more is it going to be absolutely impossible for us, if we neglect the salvation message that is brought through Jesus. And he goes on to prove the validity of the message of Jesus. This wasn't just something that, that this guy you know, just kind of came out of nowhere with. But Jesus preached it. His, his disciples who followed Him continued to pass it on and proclaim it. And God Himself testified and declared through these miraculous signs and these wonders that this was truth both in the miracles of Jesus and the apostles 
and the signs and the gifts that were experienced in the early church, all of things attested to the truthfulness and the validity of the gospel message. And so basically he's saying, remember, the message of Jesus is better. Even though the law was good and it served its purpose, it had its place, Jesus brings the final word of God to us. You want to know what God's ultimate plan and His ultimate purpose is, then look to the message of Jesus and the Gospel. It is one that we can depend on and a message that is far superior. He reminds them of this in verses 2-6. to Then in verses 5-8, to He gives another reminder and He tells them that Jesus rules this final kingdom. He brings in this additional argument to support Jesus' position above the angels. The angels are not the ones who are going to rule the world to come, he says. But actually, it's humanity who has been entrusted with this rule. And he cleverly supports this claim by quoting from Psalm chapter 8. This psalm that Aaron actually preached earlier this summer. I encourage you to go back and listen. And I love that, although he couldn't remember the reference at the time, he doesn't actually designate it Psalm 8, but he, I love, this is just a side note, I love how he says, it's been testified somewhere. Somewhere it says this. So if you ever can't remember past, it's all right. Neither could the writer of Hebrews. So, uh, but somewhere it says this. It's actually Psalm 8. He assumes that the audience is familiar with this. He quotes just a part of it. And, and in this, he says, What is my man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower, a little lower than the angels but crowned Him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under His feet. We don't have time to, to, to dwell here long, but the psalm declares God's design for humanity to rule over this world. But it also has these deep and rich messianic implications that the writer of the Hebrews draws on and, and pulls out here. He's saying, just as, he says, as Jesus has come as the true Adam, the true human, He is the one who ultimately inherits this renewed world as He conquers all the rulers of evil. And it's those who are in Christ who are those who will rule with Him, not the angelic realm. He's saying, remember where this is all going. Remember this is God's ultimate plan and purpose. You ruling and reigning alongside of Jesus. He is the one under which everything will ultimately be subjected. He will rule the world to come. And it's not the angels, which is why this salvation that's found and offered is why Peter later will say that this is salvation that the angels long to look into. They are blown away by this. They can't understand this. But this is God's plan that in Jesus... He would bring full restoration and an eternal rule to this world. It's to Jesus and those with Him who will receive this kingdom. And so in light of that, in light of that reminder, He's saying stick with Jesus. Don't turn away from Jesus because He is the end game. Everything that this is heading towards, it terminates in Him. So don't leave Him. Stay with Him. He is the one who will bring you along and and ultimately place you with Him alongside and rule this world forever. This is the reminder He gives them. And then where we get to in verses 9-18 to is really the heart of this, this passage where we see this profound encouragement that is offered. This encouragement that's offered as we lift up Jesus. He starts here by bringing in this next point with somewhat of a caveat. He has just said, 
at the end of verse 8, that in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control, right? So Jesus is going to rule over everything. And so he, the, the writer kind of anticipates kind of the pushback against that. And he says this, he says, actually, you know what? At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Because somebody might step back and say, well, sure doesn't seem like Jesus is ruling right now. It doesn't seem like we rule over this world. This kind of seems like a mess. So what's going on here? And I think, I think this picks up this tension that we see in the new covenant age of this already but not yet reality that we live in. That Christ has already conquered. He already rules. And yet, here in this physical world that we live and experience, that has not taken place in fullness. So he says, we don't see everything fully subjected to Christ right now at this moment, and that may give you pause to be discouraged, to be, you know, kind of lose your, your footing. Maybe can we actually hold on to Jesus? Because I don't, I don't see him ruling right now. But he says this, and I love how he brings this in. He says, we don't see everything subjected to him right now, but we see him. But we see him the one who was made lower than the angels for a little time, namely Jesus. We don't see everything as it's going to be, but we do see this. We have something certain that we can look to, and it is the life and the humanity of Jesus. And so he goes on to unpack this in these three points. First of all, he draws us to consider the purpose of His coming so he's saying, and trying to encourage them, he says, look at the humanity of Jesus. And as we look at the humanity of Jesus, we consider the purpose of His coming. Why did He actually come? It says that as we look at Him, we see Him crowned with glory and honor. And how does He receive this glory and honor? It's through His suffering. We see this complete reversal of everything that we as humans are trying to, to achieve and accomplish. That the path to glory and the path to honor is not through just getting our own way or, or, or just muscling our way and, and trampling over others, but the path to glory and honor is actually the path that's led him through suffering and ultimately death. Then in verse 10, he, he declares, he says that it was fitting, it was right, and it was good for him, for God, in bringing many sons to glory. Here he introduces this this foundational, ultimate purpose for which Christ entered into the world to bring many sons to glory. Christ coming to us was not merely to give us just an escape from judgment, but it was actually to restore us to our original purpose and our original glory as true and faithful image bearers of God. I think this ultimately is what Jesus even prays in John 17 when He says, the glory that You have given Me, I have given to them that they may be one. It's this path of restoration, not just of the world, but of God's people to restore us to what God originally intended us to be as, as, as faithful image bearers of God. It was God's ultimate purpose for humanity and the angels have no part in that. Which is why they marvel at it. Which is why he continues to, to declare that it was appropriate then that God would make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. There's a lot to unpack there. We don't have a lot of time. This idea of a founder is the idea of, of, of an initiator or a pioneer. The first to do something, to accomplish something and make and pave the way for others to follow. 
You think of the first men to actually climb and summit Mount Everest. I think it was back in 1953, these two guys ended up doing it for the first time that was actually recognized and recorded. And uh, 1953 is not that long ago. A mountain stood there for a long time. Nobody climbed it. But after they did it, now there's been, I don't know, thousands and thousands who have actually summited that mountain since then. This idea that Jesus initiated and paved the way and, and was, was the founder who, who established the path to our salvation. And it says that He was made perfect. The idea is not that He was improved upon or that He lacked perfection, but it's the idea of complete or whole. He was the, he was the perfect Savior. And it happened as He suffered and as He died and created the, the only and perfect path of salvation for His sons who He wanted to bring back to glory. So we consider this purpose of His coming. As we continue to look at Jesus, we marvel at the nature of His coming. How did He come to us? And He, he, he goes to great lengths to, to prove and argue that He entered into our human experience by becoming a man. It says that He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What's He talking about? He's saying, they're all, from, they're all of one or have one origin, one family. They all have this shared human, humanity, this human experience. And he says that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He's our brother because he was made like us. He goes on in verse 14 saying this, since the children share in flesh and blood, since we have flesh and blood, these physical bodies then He likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like us. Over and over again here, He is defending the full humanity of Jesus. In chapter 1, He declared and defended the deity of Christ. And now here, He is declaring the humanity of Christ in very certain terms. Fully God, fully man, come so that He could actually draw us to Himself. And it's crazy. It's a crazy reality, especially for the angels. Because as they're watching this, they're like, why would He be made like one of them? Like, we're even greater than them. How, how could this be? We marvel at the, at the reality that God actually took on this human flesh. And as we continue to look at Jesus, we then celebrate what He calls the result of His coming. In verses 14 and 15, he describes what happens when he came. And why, and, and as he took on human flesh, he says that, that through his death, his physical death, he would destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. I love this. So the question is how, how does the devil have the power of death? Isn't that ultimately belong to God? And I believe. How we understand this is, is by understanding who this, the devil is. His name literally means slanderer. In Revelation chapter 12, we have this image of him where it says, the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. The devil is seen as this accuser of Christians of followers of Jesus, He declares over us all of the evil and all of the wrong that we have done. All of the things that condemn us before God that demand for our death. 
but it says that Jesus takes away the grounds of his accusation against us. In his book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan picks up this theme as he tells the story of Christian who has left the city of destruction on his way to the celestial city, and he encounters this one Apollyon. And Apollyon confronts him, this, this, this devil figure, and says, hey, where are you going? You, you can't go on to the celestial city. You, you belong in my domain. I rule over you. You need to go back to the city of destruction. And Pilgrim's response is, leave me alone. I am the Lord's servant, and I am determined to follow him. And there's this exchange that goes back and forth between Christian and Apollyon. And ultimately, Apollyon brings this up, and he says, but you have already been unfaithful in serving your new Lord. So how is it possible for you to receive any wages from him? Christian replies, tell me, O Apollyon, in what ways have I been unfaithful to him? And Apollyon says, oh, let me tell you. He says, very soon after leaving the city of destruction, you were quickly discouraged when you almost drowned in the slough of despond. You made several wrong attempts to be rid of your burden, whereas you should have waited until your prince re relieved you of it himself. Through shameful oversleeping, you lost a very precious personal, personal possession. Also, you were nearly persuaded to turn back at the sight of those fierce lions. And when you converse as you travel of what you have heard and seen, your inward desire is for personal glory with regard to everything that you say or do. And Christian replies, all that you say is true. In fact, there is much more that you have left out. But the prince who I serve and honor is very merciful and most willing to forgive. But besides this, these misdemeanors were committed in your territory where I was educated in them. And as a consequence, I have grieved over them and repented of ever doing such things. Furthermore, I have received full pardon regarding these crimes from my prince. Christian declares that all of Apollyon's accusations against him are worthless. And in the story, immediately, Apollyon goes into a fit of rage and attacks him. This is this picture of what, what Christ has done to defeat and overcome the power of death. I challenge you to picture a scene. A scene in which Satan comes along and approaches God with a list. A list of all the things that you've ever done wrong. And he writes it down. He writes down your anger. Your lust, your selfishness, that time you, you spoke evil of your friend, that time you gossiped, the time you cheated, that you lied to get ahead at work, the time you were envious of that other person who got what you were longing for. The seasons of discontent that ruled your heart. And Satan comes with that list. All those things, everything that you, that you hold, that you know about yourself. And he brings that to God. And Satan says, hey, hey, you know that follower of yours? 
You know that one who declares their allegiance to you? Well, let me tell you something about them. They're not so great. And as, as Satan approaches God to, to hand him that list, Jesus steps in and he says, let me see that. And he rips it up. And he throws it aside and he says, God, Father, this is actually the list of everything that stands against this one. Satan leaves, goes back and he says, well, maybe that was in the past, but guess what? This week, that follower of yours, you know, he declared his allegiance to you, but this, this last week I saw him again, got online, looked at porn. He uh, yelled at his kids in anger, treated his wife with, with disrespect, he was lazy at work and stole, stole time. And, and Satan comes with another list. Tries to declare it over us. And Jesus steps in again and again and He takes that up and He throws it aside and says, no, this is the list. This is the list that, of everything that stands against you that, 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 I can, that He can accuse you with. This is how Jesus destroyed the power of the One who accuses the brethren. Through His life, His death, His resurrection, His atonement in our place, He strips away everything that Satan can do to come against us. Every accusation that he can bring, every lie that he can tell is neutralized and done away with by the powerful human life of Jesus lived in our place. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get these people who are struggling with doubt to believe, to hold on to. He destroyed Him who held the power of death. And also, it says that He then delivers those who through the fear of death for all of their lives were held bondage to the slavery of the fear of death. You see, beneath kind of the... the Every effort of humanity to, to seek to find joy and satisfaction and victory and success and worth in this world, lying underneath all of that is the ever-present and ever-lingering and lurking terror of the reality of death. And death is a prison from which no one can escape apart from Jesus. But only Jesus is the one who breaks our bondage to death and offers us the hope of eternal life. So he's encouraging them to look at the human life of Jesus. He was the perfect Savior. In God's plan and His, His design to bring about the restoration of this broken and fallen and rebellious world, there was one missing piece. It's as though you build a puzzle and you get to the end and you're missing a piece and it's just not complete. And you have to find that piece and put it in and when you do, there's that satisfaction that it's done. Jesus was the final piece to this plan of restoration. He was the perfect and fitting and complete Savior for us because He was one of us. As He concludes this profound encouragement, he tells us one last thing, to learn the heart of Jesus. To learn the heart of Jesus. He says here, 
In verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps. He reminds them, it says, it's, it's not the angels that actually God is concerned about. But it's actually the offspring of Abraham. Who is that? That is, as Galatians says, that, that those who are of faith are the children of Abraham. Those who put their faith and trust, these are the ones that God has come to help and to rescue and to save. He cares for us, and that's why He had to be made like us. He couldn't just send an angel because they had no means of actually delivering us from our sin. We didn't need just a powerful spiritual being, but we needed a perfect human. A faithful high priest who could make, as the passage says, propitiation for our sins, another packed word. The idea of just that the act of removing all the impediments that stand between us and God, namely our sins which are atoned for, are covered through Christ's human life. And he concludes with just this beautiful verse in verse 18 where he says, for because He Himself suffered when tempted, that means that He's actually able to help those who are being tempted. He can help you because He'd entered into your experience. When you wonder if God understands what you're going through. When you wonder whether He actually gets the mess that your life has been. Look at Jesus. Remember His human experience. You see, I think we all know that when when we go through something hard or traumatic, isn't it always at least encouraging when you encounter somebody else who, who shares that same story, who's been through that, who can empathize with you in that, who understands it? can wrestle with it. Perhaps you've shared that with somebody else after going through a hard time and you can (coughs) actually encourage someone else who's going through a similar season. We understand what that's like when somebody else feels that with us. And I believe this verse tells us that that's what this is like with Jesus. He entered into the human experience and faced the worst that the world had to offer. He knows and He understands the brokenness all around us. He he walked with people in their sickness. He's lived through homelessness. He has felt the raw emotions of being ridiculed and rejected by others. He knows what it's like to be used by others for what they can only get from Him. He witnessed the death of one that He was very close to. He experienced the abandonment of people that should have been there for Him. He felt the worst of human cruelty and physical pain and violence against Himself. He knows shame. He experienced it when He was there naked on the cross. And He understands the dark moment of death. Because of that experience, He can actually enter in and help you in your trial, in your doubts, in your struggles. What's the hardest thing you've gone through? What's the greatest fear that lies ahead of you? Jesus gets it because He's lived it. He offers hope in it and He offers ultimate rescue from it. He stands with us in solidarity and He says to the angelic hosts that He is not ashamed to call you and me His brothers and His sisters. Do you ever feel that shame? 
Do you feel those accusations constantly coming against you? Do you dig up even from years and years ago? Do you wonder if God is disappointed with you? This text declares to us that Jesus came and took all of that on Himself, and the worst thing that can be revealed about you has been covered and atoned for and dealt with on the cross. And God has been made favorable toward you. Our sins have been propitiated, have been covered so that God's wrath is turned away and He is favorable towards us and can enter into a relationship of family with us. He holds nothing against you if you have your faith in Jesus and your sins are covered. This passage was written to a people that were tempted to start to doubt, to question whether, worth, whether it was worth following this Jesus. Perhaps they began to think, well, this Jesus guy isn't around anymore. Maybe it wasn't true. Maybe we all got duped by him. Maybe it was just a foolish fairy tale. Maybe there's something better out there for us. And in this chapter, this warning comes to us. This warning, this reminder, and this encouragement that is found here is held out again to us today to pay closer attention to what we have heard, to fix our eyes obsessively on Jesus, to never give up, to, to, to mind the riches of who He is and what He has accomplished for us. And as we do that, we will be held sure we will not drift into lesser things. So look at Jesus in His full humanity experienced for us. See His heart for you. And as the writer of Hebrews will later say in chapter 10, let us hold fast to our confession of Jesus because He who promised is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for Your Word. Thankful for these truths that many of us know intellectually that we have declared and confessed many for, for many of us for a long time. And yet at times we too are drawn to question whether you are better. So I pray that these truths would, would just wash over us, that you'd allow us to, to see and hold fast to what you have done, that you in your perfect Union with the Father took on human flesh so that you could enter into our human experience and the mess and the brokenness of this world and so that you could rescue us from us from it. So we thank you for your suffering, for your death, for your life, and your resurrection that you give to us. Thank you for, for, for canceling the record of death that stood against us. Thank you for nailing that list of accusations to your cross. And in so doing you, you put to shame all the evil forces that stood against us. Let us remember these truths this week. Let us live into these things. And it's all for the sake of your name. It's all for your glory. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.